Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's December 2020 and President Trump is still fighting to overturn the results of November's presidential election. But nothing is working. Court losses keep mounting. Election officials and state legislators can't be swayed to disregard the votes of their citizens. And for Team Trump, the clock is ticking. Then, in the middle of the month, a lawyer in Wisconsin sends a memo to the president's legal team. It points to an opportunity, just a few weeks off, when Congress convenes to count the votes from the Electoral College on January 6th. The plan is this. Republican officials in states Trump lost should appoint people to pose as electors. These fake electors should act like real electors, but vote for Trump instead and transmit their votes to Washington as if they were the state's real electors. So when Congress gathers to count electoral votes, Vice President Pence should, faced with two sets of electors from these states, refuse to count the lawfully appointed Biden electors. This memo marks the beginning of a scheme that works its way through state legislatures and the halls of Congress, then to Trump himself. A scheme that ends with the Vice President of the United States in mortal danger. The initial idea was that these alternate Trump electors would be there on January 6th. And if the courts found that Biden hadn't really won, for whatever reason, Pence could choose to accept these alternative Trump electors instead. I hope Mike Pence comes through for us, I have to tell you. I hope that our great vice president, our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy. Of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him quite as much. So what is this scheme? And why does it all depend on Mike Pence? As the Constitution mandates, the vice president presides over the counting of electoral college votes. For every other election in our nation's history, this oversight has been an unremarkable ministerial task. But, this memo says, it can be more than that. The vice president, the memo's author argues, actually has the power to affect the outcome. He can refuse to count certain votes. As Select Committee Chairman Benny Thompson would later explain, Donald Trump wanted Mike Pence to do something no other vice president has ever done. The former president wanted Pence to reject the votes and either declare Trump the winner or send the votes back to the states to be counted again. The main architect and proponent of this scheme, the one that asserted that Mike Pence could affect the outcome of the counting of electoral college votes, 
is a little-known law professor from California, John Eastman. Here he is, speaking to the crowd on the ellipse on January 6th. And all we are demanding of Vice President Pence is this afternoon at 1 o'clock, he let the legislatures of the state look into this so we get to the bottom of it and the American people know whether we have control of the direction of our government or not. From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, this is The Aftermath. Episode 2, Lawyers for the Coup. I'm your host, Natalie Orpet. Eastman's scheme for Pence to overturn the election results was based on that memo that had been circulating since mid-December. The memo was drafted by a Wisconsin lawyer by the name of Kenneth Chesborough. Chesborough had done a legal analysis of the so-called President of the Senate strategy. Here's Kyle Cheney, a reporter at Politico. And what Trump and his campaign essentially did was say, we have to have our electors, even where Joe Biden won in these swing states, meet, cast their ballots, send their votes to Congress um, so that they also arrive there too, that they also get to be counted by Mike Pence or at least put up on the dais alongside the, the Biden electors. The initial idea was that these alternate Trump electors would be there on January 6th. And if the courts found that Biden hadn't really won for whatever reason, Pence could choose to accept these alternative Trump electors instead. This actually wasn't a totally unprecedented concept. Something similar happened in 1960. The Nixon-Kennedy election in Hawaii was so close that the state sent two slates of electors to Washington while the votes were being counted and challenged. These were contingent electors, just waiting for the vote count to be finalized. But in Eastman's hands, the idea morphed into something more sinister. Because this time, all of the states had already finished counting their votes. And the legal challenges had failed. Unlike in Hawaii, there really was no dispute, no honest one anyway, about who had won. What's more, the Trump electors didn't always admit that they were contingent or unofficial. They didn't make it clear that they were only there because they believed their state's election still wasn't finalized. As Representative Adam Schiff put it at one of the January 6th committee hearings. They assembled groups of individuals in key battleground states and got them to call themselves electors, created phony certificates associated with these fake electors, and then transmitted these certificates to Washington and to the Congress to be counted during the joint session of Congress on January 6th. That all starts to look a lot like fraud. But John Eastman took it a step further than that. He argued that once the fake electors were in place, the vice president would have the authority to unilaterally halt the proceedings and thus stall the certification of Biden's election. As Kyle Cheney explains... So that Pence, when he's counting the electoral votes, says, oh, I have this slate of Joe Biden electors from Georgia, but I also have this other slate of electors that are for for Trump from Georgia. How am I going to choose? Maybe we should wait and and delay and let the states figure out who they want. Um, Instead, you know, there's there's so many questions about fraud. What am I going to do? The goal, as Eastman later put it. To delay, to let them finish their investigative work and make a determination on whether 
the illegality had affected the outcome of the election. And if it didn't, to report back so that we could have some more certainty about the validity of the Biden electors. But if it did, then we wanted to make sure that the person who actually won the election was the one that was certified. The entire basis of the theory depends on one sentence tucked into the 12th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, a single mention of the procedure for counting electoral votes. It says that the vice president, quote, shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certificates and the votes shall then be counted, unquote. It's that passive voice at the end. That's where the trouble begins. The phrasing doesn't specify who does the counting, which means it doesn't indicate who can reject the votes. Does the vice president merely open the votes and announce them, leaving it to Congress to decide what to do with them? Or does the vice president himself count the votes and thus decide how to handle competing electoral slates? The Twelfth Amendment doesn't answer any of these questions. But the Electoral Count Act does. It was passed in 1887 in response to a contested election that left Congress deadlocked for weeks. The ECA does specify procedures for Congress to challenge electoral votes. And those procedures have been invoked a number of times. As Vice President Pence's counsel, Greg Jacob, explained to the January 6th committee. We had all seen that in Congress in 2000, in 2004, in 2016, there had been objections raised to various states. And those had even been debated in 2004. And so here you have an amendment that says nothing about objecting or rejecting, and yet we did have some recent practice of that happening within the terms of the Electoral Count Act. So, As Jacob pointed out in a later interview, there had been an escalation over the years in Congress as the objections to Electoral College votes became more and more aggressive. And it was actually Democrats who were behind it, initially. You can kind of see a logical progression as you go from the relatively tepid affair of 2000 to then actually having, you know, votes to reject electors in 2004 to then having all the heat of 2016 to then having a combination of those things all happening in 2020. In other words, the idea of contesting votes had been increasingly normalized using the Electoral Count Act as the mechanism for objecting. But there was one key difference between those earlier objections and what happened on January 6, 2021. In each of those instances, the losing presidential candidate had said, let's not make an issue of this on January 6. But in in 2020, we saw what happens when the losing candidate joins and encourages those objections. So now you have it both happening in the Congress and you have the megaphone of a losing candidate who's also president at the same time, and you got to see that combination. So 2020 was the first election in which it wasn't just members of Congress who planned to object. Trump wanted Pence to object as well. But the Electoral Count Act only provides for congressional objections— It says nothing about the vice president objecting. As Jacob explains, Eastman got around that problem by focusing his fight on the nexus of the Electoral Count Act 
and the 12th Amendment, and by claiming that the laws were in conflict. He read the 12th Amendment aggressively, arguing that the vice president's authority to, quote, open the votes was really a power to adjudicate disputes. And he claimed as well that the Electoral Count Act, a mere statute, couldn't take away power the Constitution gave to the vice president. In short, Eastman's theory worked like this. First, ignore the Electoral Count Act on grounds that it's unconstitutional. That leaves you only with the 12th Amendment. Second, the 12th Amendment says that the vice president opens the certificates from each state, which represent that state's votes. Read that aggressively to say that if the vice president opens the certificates, he also counts them. And if he counts them, he must adjudicate disputes over which votes to count. As Jacob explains, The the argument that... Uh, that John Eastman primarily advanced was that the Electoral Count Act was unconstitutional because the vice president's authorities in here in the text of the Constitution itself. Um, sure, it doesn't say who gets to do the counting. Uh, it's clear the vice president opens the certificates. There's no verb attributed to the House or the Senate, he says. Therefore, it's the vice president who gets to count. Then we go to the next leap, which is if you have a right to count, that means you have a right to reject, which doesn't say anywhere in the text. That was Eastman's theory, and he brought it to the man who would need to implement it, Vice President Pence. Here's Jacob, later explaining Pence's reaction to the January 6th committee. But the vice president's first instinct when he heard this theory was that there was no way that our framers who abhorred concentrated power, who had broken away from the tyranny of George III, would ever have put one person, particularly not a person who had a direct interest in the outcome because they were on the ticket for the election, in a role to have decisive uh, impact on the outcome of the election. And our review of text, history, and frankly, just common sense all confirmed the vice president's first instinct on that point. There is no uh, justifiable basis to conclude that the vice president has that kind of authority. Jacob privately tried to convince Eastman that the vice president did not have the authority to determine the outcome of the election. And as he later told the January 6th committee, there was one meeting at the White House where he actually got Eastman to agree with him. He had come into that meeting trying to persuade us that there was some validity to his theory. I viewed it as my objective to persuade him to acknowledge he was just wrong. And I thought this had to be one of the most powerful arguments. I mean, John, back in 2000, you weren't jumping up and saying Al Gore had this authority to do that. You would not want Kamala Harris to be able to exercise that kind of authority in 2024 when I hope Republicans will win the election, and I know you hope that too, John. And he said, absolutely. Al Gore did not have a basis to do it in 2000. Kamala Harris shouldn't be able to do it in 2024, but I think you should do it today. In short, in candid, private moments, Eastman admitted that there was no principle here. But Jacob couldn't convince Eastman to drop the argument. And two days before Pence was set to preside over the count, Eastman got an audience with the president. 
John Eastman showed up in the Oval Office on January 4th. And that night is the first time the president takes to the stage and says, I really hope that Mike Pence is going to get this done for me. And that next morning is the first time he tweets, the vice president has the power to reject. And that night of January 5th is the first time he puts out a press release uh, saying the vice president can either reject or return to the states. Pence was keeping his own counsel. He wasn't saying anything publicly, at least not yet, about his analysis or his plans. Here's Kyle Cheney again. Pence kept his cards close to his chest until the morning of January 6th. So there was actually this moment, this long period where we're, we're all guessing, what is Mike Pence going to do? Um, and in some ways that contributed to the instability um, of the process because we really didn't know. But Greg Jacobs says he knew all along that Pence would never go along with the scheme. There was no way that Mike Pence, whose first instinct was that this did not make sense to him, didn't comport with what he saw in his first election to Congress in 2000 as Al Gore gaveled people down, didn't comport with his understanding of what it meant to have um, uh, a diffusion of powers where the framers would never have wanted to kind of vest that kind of authority in one person. So uh, his instincts were always that it didn't make sense to him. And I merely provided the legal framework that confirmed um, what really is, at the end of the day, to some extent, a common-sense proposition. On the morning of January 6th, Pence went public. He issued a statement that it was his, quote, "...considered judgment that my oath to support and defend the Constitution constrains me from claiming unilateral authority to determine which electoral votes should be counted and which should not." The result? The vice president came perilously close to being attacked by a mob, a mob that was calling for his lynching. In the moment, Jacob sent emails to John Eastman. Thanks to your bull, we are now under siege. He called Eastman a serpent in the ear of the president. The violence caused the vote count to take longer than the rules allow, so Eastman wrote back to Jacob with a plea. Since the rules were broken already, why not break one more and send the votes back to the states? The people who stormed the building believed that the vice president had authorities that he, in fact, did not have, um, and that that was a motivating factor for them in storming the building. Um, and after you see all of that actually play out, the kind of practical implications that I had expressed to him on the 5th. If the courts don't decide this is going to be decided in the streets, well, the streets had come to us. And he still wanted us to go ahead and push ahead with his theory. It's been almost three years since Eastman and Trump weaponized this far-fetched legal theory to provoke a violent attack. An attack that threatened the life of the sitting vice president of the United States. So, to what extent have its supporters been held to account? The first step in finding accountability was to discredit Eastman's legal theory. After all, if you think that he had done careful and well-reasoned legal analysis to reach his conclusion, you could see the consequences as unfortunate but not really Eastman's fault. But how to prove that the theory was not just wrong, but obviously wrong? 
the first major effort came from the January 6th committee. At some point in its investigation, Eastman became a focal point. But for a while, the public didn't know why. Only that the committee's lawyers were actively trying to obtain documents from him. You know, with uh, Professor Eastman, who uh, I'm going to use air quotes, uh, or, you know, was the brains behind, um, we're told, but behind uh, some of, you know, the strategy on how to um, obstruct Congress from, from doing its, uh, its duty on January 6th. That was the voice of Douglas Letter. He served as counsel to the House of Representatives and represented the committee before the courts in its litigation with Eastman over access to his documents. We knew that um, many of his emails were at uh, within the control of Chapman University, where he had been a professor. The university was very unhappy with work that he was doing uh, in that role. And so uh, it turned out that they were willing to cooperate. But Eastman didn't want the January 6th committee to gain access to this information. So he fought it in court. In particular, he argued that the committee shouldn't be allowed to see the documents because they were shielded by attorney-client privilege. His client, he said, was the president of the United States, Donald Trump. It would have been a reasonable argument. Attorney-client privilege is a legitimate basis for withholding documents. But the privilege is not ironclad. As Letter explains... There's a well-established exception to attorney-client privilege when the attorney and the... um client or engaging together, you know, in crime fraud, or when the client is using the attorney for a scheme involving uh, crime or fraud, the attorney-client privilege does not apply. In other words, to defeat the claim of privilege and get access to Eastman's document, the committee had to prove that it was more likely than not that Eastman and Trump had engaged in crime or fraud. And, as it turned out, the committee had plenty of evidence. Remember, we had more than one, a whole lot more than one source of information. We knew that this was likely to be problematic for them and that there was a very good argument for crime fraud. One of the things that was attorney-client privilege was being claimed over was something where, as you know, Professor Eastman said uh, his advice was that um, the Trump folks should just do a minor violation of the law. So there it was, the evidence of crime fraud. And I said to Judge Carter that I've been practicing law for about 42 years. I was very familiar with the attorney-client privilege. I could assure him that I had never once advised a client to, you know, if we just engage in a minor violation of the law, that's okay. And uh, if I had been caught at doing it, I certainly never would have said, This is covered by attorney-client privilege. When Judge Carter issued his opinion, he did not shy away from concluding that Eastman and Trump had likely committed felonies, including obstructing the work of Congress and conspiring to defraud the United States. The illegality of the plan, Carter wrote, was obvious. This legal ruling took on significance far beyond the immediate question of whether Eastman's documents were shielded by attorney-client privilege. It gave serious credence to the notion that Trump had engaged in a criminal conspiracy to overturn the election. And beyond that, Carter's opinion represented a dramatic rejection 
of Eastman's argument. It was not just a bad legal argument. It was, as Carter wrote, a coup in search of a legal theory. Quote, based on the evidence, the court finds that President Trump and Dr. Eastman dishonestly conspired to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6th, undermining American democracy and the Constitution. The January 6th committee would later pick up that exact line at its third hearing, where it reported its findings about the so-called fake elector scheme. It wasn't exactly a made-for-TV story. How could they interest the public in esoteric debates about the 12th Amendment and an 1887 Act of Congress? But the committee decided it was important. It was the only way to expose the duplicity of the scheme. So it brought in a preeminent former conservative judge, Michael Ludig, to explain why Eastman's theory was baseless. In his testimony, Ludig was unsparing. There was no basis in the Constitution or laws of the United States at all for the theory espoused by Mr. Eastman at all. None. Eastman had once clerked for none other than Judge Ludig. In his testimony, Ludig also called Eastman's analysis constitutional mischief. But as Greg Jacob, Pence's counsel, testified, the key point wasn't just that Eastman's theory was wrong— It was that Eastman knew it was wrong, and actually illegal, even as he made it. The committee made one more point. Eastman was told it was wrong, repeatedly, by prominent lawyers in Trump's orbit. And he wanted to push forward anyway, even if it led to violence. The committee played a video recording of the deposition of White House attorney Eric Hirschman, describing what he told Eastman upon hearing this theory. I said, you're completely crazy. I said, you're going to turn around and tell 78-plus million people in this country. And I said, they're not going to tolerate that. I said, you're going to cause riots in the streets. And he said, words to the effect of, there's been violence in the history of our country, Eric, to protect the democracy or protect the republic. The point of all this naming and shaming? Accountability. To get into the public record exactly what happened and who had done what, and just how wrong and even illegal it was. But the committee didn't stop at holding Eastman accountable. It also went after Kenneth Chesbrough, the author of the original memo. Um, Of some of the actions taken... Uh, by a gentleman named Kenneth Cheeseborough. On the evening of December 18th, 2020, Sidney Powell, General Michael Flynn, and others entered the... The committee took a big symbolic step beyond just naming and shaming. At its last public event on December 19th, 2022, it referred John Eastman and Donald Trump, as well as an unnamed group of others, to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. Chairman Benny Thompson explained that the gravity of their offenses exceeded the committee's authority to respond. Beyond our findings, we will also show that evidence we've gathered points to further action beyond the power of this committee or the Congress to help ensure accountability under law. Accountability that can only be found 
in the criminal justice system. The committee's referral had no legal effect. The Justice Department decides on its own whether to prosecute people. But the committee's work may have given the Justice Department a bit of a jump start in its own investigation, which would heat up against Trump and Eastman alike over the year that followed. But the committee's work had a more immediate impact, too. Within weeks of its final report, the State Bar of California announced that it was going after Eastman's law license on the basis of professional misconduct. Conservative attorney John Eastman today began defending himself against 11 disciplinary charges brought by the State Bar of California. The bar charged Eastman with 11 counts under the California statute governing attorney conduct. Lawfare senior editor Quinta Jurassic has been closely following bar disciplinary proceedings, including Eastman's. Here's Quinta. The first charge is, I think, kind of the the showstopper. Um, It's charging Eastman with what is called, and I quote, failure to support the Constitution and laws of the United States. And this is really what allows the bar to point directly to Eastman's efforts to uh, coordinate with Trump and with his supporters to help Trump hold on to power. Um, What's interesting about this as well is that the bar also points to its belief that Eastman violated the criminal law by, uh, and I quote, dishonestly conspiring to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. The next charges the California bar allege relate to cases Eastman litigated. After that, we have uh, two charges that uh, charge Eastman with seeking to mislead a court. And these stem from Eastman's involvement in two different cases. The ethics rules are very strict when it comes to what an attorney can say to a court. It's not just that lying is forbidden. It's that attorneys have an affirmative duty to tell the truth. The eight remaining counts all charge Eastman with moral turpitude, which essentially means conduct that is so immoral or unethical as to be shocking. It's also a term that forms the basis for disbarment under California law. Generally, there are sort of two main buckets of conduct here. Um, One has to do with falsehoods about election fraud. The second has to do with uh, legal analysis put forward by Eastman, which the California bar alleges was knowingly incorrect. Um, Essentially, a lot of this has to do with Eastman's analysis having to do with the Electoral Count Act and Pence's supposed ability, according to Eastman, to step in and upend the electoral count. That second bucket sounds a lot like what the January 6th committee did in naming and shaming Eastman. It spent a lot of time debunking his legal analysis. But the California bar's disciplinary action actually does more than that, because it's not adjudicating the merits of the theory as a legal matter. It's looking at whether, in making that argument, Eastman acted so unethically that he should lose his license to practice law. Here's Quinta again. They have to show that he intentionally was giving this wrong advice. And they're helped here by the fact that there's a bit of a paper trail. So here again, those documents the committee got from Eastman proved to be crucial. Because those documents show that Eastman knew his legal theory was wrong. And he knew that what he was advising was illegal. Attorneys are subject to other ethical rules as well. It's not enough to be truthful to a tribunal. 
they also have a duty to their clients to advise them fully. That's where Greg Jacob sees a problem for Eastman. The, my, my problem was always with whether he had fulsomely advised his client of the weakness of the position, the practical implications, the drawbacks, what would actually happen if that position was advanced by the vice president on that day. But what would happen if that actually got into the courts? What would the result be? Um, There is an obligation under the model rules to ensure that you counsel your client with all of the practical practical consequences and the strength and not of your case so that your client can make an informed decision. And I had not seen that done. As of the time of this recording, the judge overseeing these proceedings has yet to decide whether Eastman should be disbarred. But what about all of the other lawyers who, like Eastman, promoted baseless legal theories or filed frivolous lawsuits? Did their respective bars come after them as well? For some of them, yes, especially the most publicly known individuals. Several of them faced disciplinary action long before the January 6th committee's hearings. Ken Paxton, the Attorney General of Texas, was one of them. On December 11, 2020, Paxton asked the Supreme Court to block four states, which Biden had won, from voting in the Electoral College. He claimed that they had administered their elections unlawfully, and that their voting processes were mired with irregularities. The Supreme Court rejected the case for lack of standing, never even getting to the merits of Paxton's claims. But the State Bar of Texas had other ideas. By June 2021, it was formally investigating Paxton. It filed a professional misconduct suit against him in May 2022. Um, and the bar writes in their charges against him, quote, his allegations were not supported by any charge, indictment, judicial filing, and or credible or admissible evidence, and failed to disclose to the court that some of his representations and allegations had already been adjudicated and or dismissed in a court of law. It's worth emphasizing just how wild a lot of the allegations in this filing were, Um People described it right away as, and I quote, wildly illogical, ludicrous, um, and featuring statistical incompetence. Um, so this is not a situation where, you know, they they made a legitimate argument, misinterpreted some, you know, data um, in good faith. It, it was very clear immediately that this was based on absolutely nothing. At the time of this recording, the suit against Paxton is still ongoing. So we don't know yet what consequence he'll face for his actions, if anything. Another attorney who faced accountability from the legal profession was Jenna Ellis. She was not disbarred, but instead was publicly censured for her role in propagating the big lie in court. In March 2023, Jenna Ellis agreed to a public censure by the Colorado Supreme Court and the state's Office of Attorney Regulatory Council, um, agreeing to a stipulation that described her repetition of election falsehoods as violating professional prohibitions on dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. Then there's Sidney Powell. Powell, you'll recall, was front and center after the election, filing lawsuits and fighting the results in multiple states. Um, I think she really became notorious for her promise to release the Kraken 
uh, of election litigation that she was going to, you know, prove once and for all that the election had been stolen from Trump. Uh, she ended up filing four lawsuits in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which became known as the Kraken suits, essentially alleging election fraud and attempting to block uh, election certification from going forward. The legal system came after Powell in a different way here. In August 2021, she and some of her co-counsel in the Kraken cases were sanctioned by a federal court in Michigan. A courtroom battle continues whether lawyers who pushed false election conspiracies should be punished. In new filings, former attorney for President Trump, Sidney Powell, claiming she and six other attorneys should avoid sanctions for spreading misinformation about the 2020 election. In addition to sanctions, Powell's law license is also in jeopardy. And the rest of her team is facing bar discipline in several states. The results here are mixed once again. The proceedings against Powell are still ongoing in Texas, where there's been significant litigation over the Texas bar's efforts to impose attorney discipline. Meanwhile, in Michigan, where Powell is not even a member of the bar, disciplinary authorities took the unusual step of filing ethics charges against her as well. The indictment says co-conspirator three filed a lawsuit against the governor of Georgia on November 25th, 2020, alleging massive election fraud. The Texas Tribune reports Dallas attorney Sidney Powell filed a lawsuit in Georgia on the same day, alleging voter fraud. But aside from professional sanctions, lawyers faced another form of accountability, civil liability. We previously discussed Rudy Giuliani's legal woes over his defamation of election workers. But the various counsel to the coup have also faced lawsuits. Chesborough, the author of the memo that started the whole fake electors plot, has been sued in his home state of Wisconsin, along with a bunch of the fake electors themselves. On December 6, 2023, several of those fake electors settled the lawsuit, but it remains pending against Chesborough. A milestone in Wisconsin. Ten Republicans admitted that Joe Biden won Wisconsin. The ten fake Republicans signed a document that said in part, quote, we hereby withdraw the documents we executed on December 14, 2020, and request that they be disregarded by the public and all entities to which they were submitted. But the most serious form of accountability for these lawyers, criminal prosecution. Once again, Eastman is at the top of the list. And it's not surprising. His potential criminal exposure had been clear in real time to others on the Trump team. Eric Hirschman, the White House lawyer who was outraged by Eastman's legal theory, told the January 6th committee that he had even warned Eastman that he could be criminally prosecuted for what he was recommending. I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? Could I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth from now on. Orderly transition. And I screamed and said, I don't want to hear any other effing words coming out of your mouth, no matter what, other than orderly transition. Repeat those words to me. Eventually, he said, orderly transition. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. And then I hung up on him. Hirschman turned out to be right. On August 14, 2023, more than a year and a half after that conversation, 
Eastman and 18 co-defendants were indicted in Fulton County, Georgia. It was part of a mega case brought by District Attorney Fonnie Willis against Trump and those who worked with him to undermine the 2020 election. Eastman was indicted on nine counts, including filing false documents, conspiracy to commit impersonating a public officer, and conspiracy to commit forgery in the first degree. Eastman has not commented on the charges. On September 5th, 2023, Eastman pleaded not guilty to all of the charges against him. He maintained that his efforts to overturn the results of the election were legal. Here's Eastman outside of the Fulton County Courthouse. I'm here today to surrender to an indictment that should never have been brought. It targets attorneys for their zealous advocacy on behalf of their clients, something attorneys are ethically bound to provide, and which was attempted here by formally challenging the results of the election through lawful and appropriate means. Do you still think the election was stolen? Absolutely. And here he is on 60 Minutes a few months later. But that was the first advice I got from my legal team when I put them together, said we don't talk about anything. And, and in normal times, that's the right advice for lawyers to give their criminal defendant clients. Um, but I quickly determined that this fight was much more about the criminal law, the specific law, and a public fight. We did nothing wrong. And it's important to counteract the false narratives on that uh, because uh, uh, all of my actions were designed to investigate illegality in the election to see if they had an impact. Eastman is not alone in facing criminal liability for the legal theory underlying the coup. There was Jenna Ellis, a former lawyer for Trump who made false statements during a hearing before the Georgia State Legislature in December 2020. She pushed Eastman's theory and made claims of widespread voter fraud throughout Georgia. Ellis is censured by the bar in March 2023. By August, she is indicted in Fulton County, Georgia. And then by October of that year, she pleads guilty. So she has a very uh, eventful 2023. Also indicted in Fulton County was Kenneth Chesborough the author of that original memo that served as the basis for Eastman's fake electors plot. Chesborough ultimately pleaded guilty to one of the charges against him. Pro-Trump lawyer Kenneth Chesborough entered a plea deal with Fulton County prosecutors in Georgia. Chesborough pleaded guilty to a charge of conspiracy to file false documents, which is a felony. He also agreed to testify against other defendants. Fulton County prosecutors weren't the only ones looking at the lawyers for the coup. On November 18, 2022, Attorney General Merrick Garland assigned the January 6th case to Special Counsel Jack Smith. Nine months later, on August 1, 2023, Smith brought a federal indictment against Trump. Unlike in Fulton County, no one else was charged alongside Trump. But the lawyers feature prominently as unindicted co-conspirators. Number two in this indictment is former Trump attorney John Eastman. This is the person who wrote this two-page memo. This was the plan for Mike Pence to be able to essentially overturn the 2020 presidential election while presiding over the electoral... He doesn't appear by name, but unindicted co-conspirator number two is likely John Eastman. The indictment describes him as, quote, an attorney who devised and attempted to implement 
a strategy to leverage the vice president's ceremonial role overseeing the certification proceeding to obstruct the certification of the presidential election, unquote. The fake electors plan and president of the Senate strategy are central to both indictments. Here are special counsel Jack Smith and district attorney Fonnie Willis describing the charges they brought. It's described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the US government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. That rather than abide by Georgia's legal process for election challenges, the defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. There's another group of people who have seen accountability through criminal charges, too. Remember, Trump lawyers like Chesborough and Eastman weren't the only people involved in executing the scheme. They needed people, the fake electors, to participate as well. If Eastman is the chess master, Trump is the king, and the fake electors are the pawns. These were the Trump supporters who plotted to send their fake electoral votes to Washington. It was their names on these fraudulent electoral certificates. And now, they're facing consequences. Now, state and federal prosecutors have investigated this fake elector scheme for months now. And last night, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis indicted three of Georgia's fake electors. Those Georgia fake electors are now part of a club that includes Michigan's 16 fake electors who were charged by that state's attorney general last month. There's been one more form of accountability for the scheme that almost killed Vice President Pence. Remember the flawed Electoral Count Act? that vague statute from 1887 that Eastman's entire plot hinged on? It turned out that despite the extreme polarization in Washington, a lot of members of Congress could agree on one thing. That law needed to be fixed. Here's Kyle Cheney. But what Congress did after this all shook out and was say, we got to at least put our stamp on the Electoral Count Act in a way that, that makes sure that the worst abuses or the, mo- the worst theoretical and potential abuses that almost came to pass couldn't actually come to pass in the future. So members focused on addressing the gaps in the law that Eastman had exploited to fit his theory. So that meant things like the Electoral Count Act says a state, you know, after, after the election is certified by a state government, sort of who, whose responsibility it is to certify it and uh, what is the state legislature's role in all that? Well, the Constitution does say state legislatures get to direct the manner of their elections and, and the appointment of elector, presidential electors. And that's where John Eastman seized on and said state legislatures are the only ones who can decide who which electors go to Congress. And if they decide that uh, you know the election was tainted by fraud, they can send whoever they want to Congress, and that's who Mike Pence has to count. In December 2022... After five months of negotiations, the Electoral Count Reform and Presidential Transition Improvement Act of 2022 was signed into law. And what the Electoral Count Act Reform did was decide, was sort of limit the definition of what is actually a failed election. What is the circumstances in which an election can be deemed so irreparably tainted that that it, it calls for a role for the state legislature or the or the operation of or, the, or state government to step in? and appoint a new slate or something. 
The primary purpose of the legislation is to explain what is supposed to happen after a presidential election, specifically the procedures for counting and certifying electoral college votes. Most of those procedures were already outlined in the Constitution and the original Electoral Count Act of 1887, but the new law endeavors to make them much clearer. So that someone like John Eastman can't exploit imperfect language to bolster nonsensical legal theories. And what the Electoral Count Act reform that eventually passed Congress said was, no, the vice president's role is ministerial. Uh, means that's what he's supposed to do, exactly what the vice president has always done in the history of America, and especially since the Electoral Count Act passed, which is basically nothing. A lot of the people who resisted John Eastman said, I think correctly, based on a historical review, that the vice president has zero, literally zero power to do anything in the joint session of Congress on January 6th, except open envelopes. It basically codifies the arguments people like Greg Jacob made when they rejected Eastman's theory. In a way, the new law says to them, you were right. But it may not work. Eastman, after all, found the vice president's surprising power in the Constitution, not in the statute. And Congress can't change constitutional law by making changes to a mere statute. Greg Jacob sees another problem. Even though the reform is helpful, he worries that the revision doesn't do enough to counteract what's been happening for the past two decades after every presidential election. Objections during the electoral count have been escalating along partisan lines. That's dangerous, he says, because objections undermine each president's legitimacy. The new law makes objecting harder simply by requiring more members of Congress to take the procedural step. But it doesn't change the underlying partisan dynamic. Now we've established a floor that you at least have a significant number of people in both houses in order to be able to bring them. So we make them rarer, but you still allow for pure partisan politics to have the effect of rejecting electoral votes. And I think that is a dangerous proposition. Kyle Cheney points out another problem. This one relates to what happens to the people who are already facing accountability for pushing the scheme that the new law is meant to correct. Those people can now use the mere fact of the new law to argue that their legal interpretation was right all along. The issue with that is you now see people like Donald Trump and John Eastman saying, well, if Congress passed a law to say the vice president's role is ministerial, that must mean it wasn't ministerial before, and they're acknowledging that we were right. That, that is absolutely not what they meant to, to do by this and never nor intended to. It was that to sort of codify what they believe the only good faith reading of law and history is. Cheney also worries that the ECRA, even with all of its new specificity, could still be exploited by bad actors especially in states where bad actors might attempt to overturn the results of the election. That's because, even though it puts new limits on what Congress can do to contest the election results, it doesn't do anything to address another danger, the one from governors. They play a key role in election procedures, too. They're the ones who have to certify the Electoral College votes in their states before those votes are transmitted to Congress to be counted. So governors 
could throw the whole election into chaos as well. What if you have a corrupt governor who certifies a fraudulent slate and sends it to Congress? That didn't happen in 2020. But there's a scenario where you, an election denier, you know, gets elected governor and says, oh, I don't think the Democrat or the Republican really won this state. I'm going to send my own electors and certify it. I refuse to certify this. This hypothetical gets even worse. Because if a governor certifies a fraudulent slate of electors, the ECRA actually creates a new loophole of the same type it was trying to fix. It would be much harder for Congress to correct that governor's fraud. Well, if Congress's hands are tied by the Electoral Count Reform Act, um, you know, then they have to count the fake slate that they, everybody knows is fake. Um, and so it's there's, those kinds of unintended consequences were a big hindrance. And so it's not a perfect law. It doesn't resolve every problem that might arise. But it is a meaningful step in the effort to prevent something like January 6th from ever happening again. In that way, it's a form of accountability, a clear statement that this scheme was so unacceptable that even a deeply divided Congress could agree. It must never be repeated. And Mike Pence, I hope you're going to stand up for the good of our Constitution and for the good of our country. And if you're not, I'm going to be very disappointed. I will tell you right now. So what about Mike Pence, the man the whole scheme hinged on, and the man who shut it down, even as people were calling for his lynching? In the years following the January 6th attack, the former vice president faced significant backlash, not to mention even more threats from Trump and his supporters. Do you ever second-guess yourself? That was a constitutional right that you had to send those votes back to the states. It was not like you were going to personally elect him. Heading into the 2024 election, it was clear that Trump and Pence would not be on the Republican ticket together. Instead, Pence launched his own bid for president and made January 6th, the rule of law, and the overall denunciation of Trump the central themes of his campaign. Anyone who puts themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. And anyone who asks someone else to put themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States again. But what the president maintained that day and frankly has said over and over again over the last two and a half years, is completely false. Here's what Greg Jacob had to say about Pence's campaign. And I do think that one of the things that the presidential campaign showed was that Mike Pence counted the cost that he knew he would bear if he went ahead and did what his oath required him to do, and in the face of that known cost, did it anyway. There was no cost to me in providing providing the advice, uh, but there was a real cost to him in doing it. It's no secret that the Republican Party has been overtaken by Donald Trump and the big lie. But Jacob describes Pence's campaign for president as a defiance of that notion and as an effort to reestablish traditional conservative principles within the party and shift away from Trumpism. Other thing that he really wanted to do with the campaign was to talk about the elements of the party that have fallen into backward-looking grievance as the main thing that drives 
uh, their political existence. And he really, I think, called the party back to principles. Unfortunately for Pence, it wasn't a winning message. On October 28th, after lagging far behind the other candidates, including Trump, Pence made an announcement. Traveling across the country over the past six months, I came here to say it's become clear to me, this is not my time. So after much prayer and deliberation, I have decided to suspend my campaign for president effective today. Pence's campaign gave voters a choice between the guy who tried to overturn a Democratic election and the guy who stopped him. And the polling was clear. Voters largely chose the former. Was your vice president, Mike Pence, who says that you endangered his life on that day. I don't do think he feel, was in any danger. Mr. President, do you feel that you owe him an apology? No, because he did something wrong. He should have put the votes back to the state legislatures, and I think we would have had a different outcome. I really do. But he doesn't have the authority to do that. Despite all the forms of accountability we've talked about during this episode, investigations, bar discipline, indictments, in the passage of major legislation, Donald Trump remains the most prominent figure in the Republican Party. And lawyers continue to assert ludicrous legal theories on his behalf. Just recently, a Trump lawyer argued before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals that if Trump had ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival while he was president, he could not be charged with a crime unless Congress impeached him first. Meanwhile, the big lie is still going strong and continuing to spread. And we've yet to address one of the most significant reasons why, social media. That's next episode on The Aftermath. Federal agents and prosecutors used hundreds of thousands of social media posts as evidence in the criminal investigation. And in many cases, federal investigators say a defendant's own public social media photos and videos show them committing these crimes. The Aftermath is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. I'm your host, Natalie Orpet. Series executive producers are Benjamin Wittes and me. Production and story editing at Goat Rodeo from Max Johnston. Senior producers are Catherine Pompilio of Lawfare and Megan Nadolsky and Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Scripting by me, Catherine Pompilio, and Benjamin Wittes. Additional production assistance from Isabel Kirby McGowan, Jay Venables, Kara Schillen, Anna Hickey, and Caleb Benjamin. Cover art by Ian Enright. To learn more about Lawfare, or to support our work, visit our website at lawfaremedia.org.